HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, I'm Kathy Array, the host of Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. This summer, I'm taking a little break and having co-host Talia Ralph and Brianna Kurtz host several episodes. I'll see you back in the fall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host today, Brianna Kurtz. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Ellen Gustafson, author of her new book, We the Eaters, If We Change Dinner, We Can Change the World. This is Ellen's first book, and she is a busy lady, as she's the co-founder of the Feed Program, yes, that Feed Program, as well as Food Tank. Hi, Ellen. Happy Memorial Day. Hi. Thanks. Same to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all day, so I'm going to jump right in. And I want to know, what, when did you decide to write this book, and, and why? You know, I, I really had an aha moment uh, in 2008 in Uganda, which sounds like a crazy place to start. But I, I was looking for food to take out with me to go visit some projects that um, I was supporting as a, as a co-founder of Feed, um, which is the handbag company that helps to raise money and awareness for child hunger. And in a, in a little market in a small city in Uganda, I literally looking around, all I could find were things like soda and snack food. And it really blew my mind that here I was in this bastion of hunger and only could find the kind of things that you'd find at any convenience store back in the United States. And when, when I returned home from that trip, uh, you know, I kind of first arrived in the airport and went into one of those convenience stores and was like, wow, I'm literally faced with the same options here in America, where we have this raging obesity epidemic, as I was in rural, you know, in, in, this, in this small city in Uganda where they have still such a, a huge hunger problem. And it clicked for me, the connection between obesity and hunger and the fact that, you know, there's so much food available, but so often it's just unhealthy food. And, and it got me on this whole tangent and track of thinking, I need to really delve into this problem of what's gone wrong with our food system and why these two problems exist globally and domestically, and, and really what we can do about it. 
And I think there's an undoubtable kind of patriotic tone to this book from the title and the font on the cover, the red, white, and blue. But you do spend a lot of time in Africa, and clearly that's a place that's important to you. It's had an um, impact on your, your stance on things. And I think that's one of the things that really um, makes this book stand out is this international perspective. Um, because we, we have a lot of media going around, but it looks very local. It looks at what's going on in the U.S., um, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about how that food culture is being export, exported. And do you think there's like a moral imperative to kind of feed the world? You know, yeah. I mean, something I've, I've found over the years in working on, on the issue of hunger, um, but also being personally very engaged with the more sustainable local food systems, is that really the issue of global hunger can sometimes be the Achilles heel of the sustainable food movement. You know, the, the, the kind of big ag, you know, other voice says, well, how will you feed the world with these more local organic systems? And, and what I found is that that's a totally false dichotomy, that, you know, we've been wrapped up into this concept that, that it's really all about yield, and if, if our farmers just keep producing more and more of the same few crops, that's how somehow we'll feed the world. But also this idea that the American food system has literally spread to every corner of the planet. You know, there's this famous line um, that a Coca-Cola executive said that Coke is available in more countries than are recognized by the United Nations. And, I mean, I found that personally very true. You know, no matter where you go, you can get a soda. You can often get, you know, potato chips, but you can't get basic healthy food. And so I think there is a bit uh, – there's, there's something about Americans. We do want to help the world. We, we can't stand to see hunger and famine in this, in this day and age. But I, I kind of started to think that maybe the way we've been going about it isn't exactly right. And, and really what's more important is if, if we get our food systems right, then that's what we'll be spreading around the world instead of just fast food and, and soda and, and candy. Because we've done a really good job of that. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll come back to that um, in a little bit. But I... You, you have very clear writing in this book. And in, in the, I'm talking from the introduction here. It says, in this book, I will outline a vision to rebuild the fundamental systems that will bring real food to our tables. And in doing so, allow us to create healthy market options for the hungry world. And then you go on to say, strengthen the union of consumers. Is that really one of the main takeaways from this book? Kind of the core nucleus of like purchasing power and the uh, potential that it has moving forward to for change? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I one one of the big sort of motivators for my my thinking on this issue was was actually co-founding Feed. And we, when, when Feed was started in, in 2006, there really wasn't this huge movement of conscious consumerism and of one for one models and and companies that were for profits but that were built with the intention of helping to, to solve a social problem. And what we found is that consumers are so interested in finding ways to use their consumer dollars to something good. And obviously, there's been a proliferation of those kinds of companies and even companies that don't make socially conscious products trying to have a give-back element to their products. And what I, what I noticed was that we could use that same energy that people have in wearing their Tom's shoes, you know, to, in our food system. And that it almost seemed like there was a disconnect, is that, you know, we see people in the Occupy movement or see college students wearing Tom's shoes but still going to the same old fast food companies. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of I wanted there to be a little bit of a shake-up to say, hey, we're all committed to making the world a better place. Americans really are so generous, but we, we can do so much more to improve the world if we adjust our food budget than, than really almost anything else in our lives. 
And I think, you know, you were really in on the ground floor. I mean, 2006 to 2014, and you've done a lot in that time. What has been like some of the biggest uh, changes that you've seen, really tangible things? Well, you know, in, in the food movement, I think we're past the point of the sort of quote-unquote sustainable food movement being just a passing trend. The, the, the fact is most Americans are looking for products that are more local and more organic and more healthy. Um, you know, there, there's been obviously a whole range of different diets that kind of come and go, but what stayed true is that people are realizing that just eating more fresh fruits and vegetables is, is, is something we all need to do to be healthy. And so I think we've gone from, you know, maybe in, in 2006 thinking that organic was only, you know, organic eating was only for a very slim few and, and the wealthy to thinking that maybe there's a way that actually organic can be a part of everyone's diet or just more sustainable food can be a part of, of more and more people's diets. So I, I think, you know, in conjunction with the spread of, of, of this kind of conscious capitalism and conscious consumerism movement where more and more products have a give back in food you know we've seen companies that try to do more of the right thing and provide more healthy options be the ones that win Mm -hmm. and companies that really don't offer those 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 choices for their their customers really not be making it especially you know post-crisis and you do um talk about these specific inputs in great detail um the first chapter, you talk about corn, and you cover a lot of ground in this book. I mean, you talk about GMOs and sugar and high fructose corn syrup and hunger and policy and bees and food stamps, and, and that's just <laughs> just just in the first chapter. Um, and you go on to, you know, you have equally in-depth chapters on meat and dairy, sugars and fats. And why why did you choose these specific um, ingredients, if you will? Well, you know, it's funny. It's a great question for today because the, the idea really came about. Um, in, in a personal story, I, I was um, early on when I was kind of meeting my in-laws, um, I, I, I offered to cook dinner, and it was it was summertime, and I offered to cook sort of a, you know, just make a, make a summer barbecue. And I think they thought that they were going to get some, you know, vegan kale burgers with, <laughs> with some kind of weird, you know, ingredients. And, and actually, I, I made hamburgers. And um, part of the, the meal was, was really the story of saying, you know, the hamburger in and of itself is not a, is not a terrible food from my perspective. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. advising a certain diet. But really what I was talking about is from a food system perspective, if you eat hamburgers and, and, and you know, sweet potato fries and a side salad and even, even a lightly sweetened iced tea drink with dessert, that meal, which is kind of the iconic American barbecue meal, isn't itself the problem. It's what we've done especially in recent years, and how we've produced it. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is really say, look, we've got to rethink the idea of, of you know, what our quote-unquote diet is from, oh, I don't eat this or I do eat this, to where does this food come from? What's the story behind the food? And what's the system that's brought this food to our table? And so that's really, you know, you know especially for Memorial Day weekend, the idea of, of building the meal around a hamburger, you know, um, it, it's, it's something I think all Americans want, mm-hmm. but it, it's about how can we do, how can we have that same meal, but just so much better, better for ourselves and better for the world. And I think that's um, talking about what's behind it and what's in our food. Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but I, I'll let you speak for yourself. You live in California, and the California GMO labeling bill is in the Senate there now. And what are your feelings on GMO labeling? And I mean, it failed in 2012 in California. And if you think it's going to pass this time, why now? 
You know, I, I think it's an idea that time will come. I, I think obviously there are there's so many dollars behind the campaign to not label food, um, which you know, I, I honestly I don't understand. You know, I, I think I think if, if there was real consensus um, that GMOs were perfectly healthy for us, then there's really no reason to, to not label them. And if there was real consensus. 100% consensus that GMOs are terrible for us from a human health perspective, then, then it's time for us to really rethink how we grow. But, but, you know, my perspective on GMOs actually isn't about the sort of human health impact. It's really about the fact that I don't think they've done what they promised. Mm -hmm. And also, I think they answer the wrong question. Uh, that's something I talk a lot about in the book, that, you know, the question of the time when these technologies were being developed, the, the Supreme Court decision to allow these technologies was in 1980, which is kind of a big year in the book. I talk a lot about these kind of 30-year, 35-year changes. And, and the idea was that, hey, we need to feed the world. We need to produce enough calories to feed the world. But we now know that that's actually not the primary question. The primary question is, how do we feed the world well? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of calories, but we're not doing it well. And just producing more and more corn and soybeans, no matter how they're produced, is just not the answer to how to feed the world well. So I think, you know, a couple of things will probably change in the, in the coming years that will change the course of some of these legislation processes. Number one, the conversation needs to change. You know, I think we have to get away from just the human health or, or you know, argument. And we really have to look at the system and say, is this type of farming, are these few crops the types of crops we want to grow? And if they're not, then why are we defending technologies that are only based on growing more and more of them? Yeah, and I, I want to ask you a specific question about that. And this is kind of moving away from uh, the hunger topic and more into the uh, natural resources. Is there some future where part of the solution um, is to start considering agricultural products that are grown for energy use? completely separate from food use? Because, I mean, you say 40% of all corn in produced in the U.S. is for ethanol. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is it possible that the legislation, the subsidies, the federal agricultural funding can be separate for those two things? You know, maybe, but and, and I think that's, that's an interesting concept. If corn-based ethanol were a very efficient technology, and maybe there would be energy even from sustainable food activists behind it. But from, from my, you know, kind of, you know, limited but lay knowledge of the technology, it's not the most efficient way to mm -hmm. make a fuel source. So, so that, that alone begs the question, why are we highly subsidizing this inefficient way to, to, you know, to try to replace gasoline in our cars? Yeah. But I think, I think the other thing I, I find so interesting is that, you know, we, we also have this massive, the, the, other, the other uses for corn just aren't that much better. Right. I mean, currently, I mean, we, we use it to have a cheap feed for, for cows. So we have this, you know, sort of distorted cheap meat prices and, and dairy prices that, you know, maybe they're not cheap all the time, but, but certainly they're, they're not necessarily market based with highly subsidized corn as an input. And then we have all these products, corn based, you know, high fructose corn syrup and corn oils and, and basically shelf stable junk food. Mm -hmm. And so we, I, it, it's frustrating to me that in the GMO conversation, you very rarely actually see the word obesity. Um, you know, maybe more recently we've seen, seen people talk about that, but often the GMO conversation is really only in the context of hunger, but I'd like to see it in the context of obesity. As we've produced more and more of these, these crops that then lead to junk food, people have gotten less healthy. So where is that in the calculus 
for kind of what types of subsidies and agricultural problems programs we have. Yeah, hopefully we'll see more literature and more um, how those things are connected. But, you know, we just cited some statistics from your book. And I think that one thing that listeners should really know is that your book is a very intense reference. Um, even the layout, it's, it's kind of like an academic journal. There's footnotes and narrow margins, and you cannot go a single page without a fact or a figure, and which is, I think will contribute to the longevity of this book. Because I've seen a lot of these statistics before, but not all in one place. Um, so I'd love to hear from you, like, what was that research process like? Like, how long have you actually been writing this book? Like, how did you go about it? <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a great question, and actually, there, there's there's a kind of a funny reason for it. Um, one being that I'm a little bit nerdy, but but the other the other being that I I started you know that that kind of story about having an awakening in, in Uganda at a food mart led me to this path of being kind of obsessed with the year 1980, and I started to even in 2008 I started to kind of write down notes of every time I saw things in the food system that related back to 1980. And, and, and I was born in 1980, so it, it kind of, you know, for, it had, there had particular resonance to me. But it, it was interesting as I started to notice more and more that it seemed like that was a very critical year uh, in terms of, a, 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 you know, a, a touch point in our food system. Really, when you look at all the literature, the entire obesity epidemic in America starts in 1980. And so there's a lot of other elements of that as, as sort of a, a you know, a, a, a data point. And so I, I actually just started to jot down all these different things that were these 30-year changes, um, and, and that kind of kicked off the, the writing process, and it made me realize, wow, there's so much here that people don't realize between the connection of global hunger and domestic obesity um, that, that really relate to this time frame. And so, I, I, you know, the data almost came first, and then, and then the concept of the book came. But the whole process has taken me Honestly, well over two years. The, the actual writing was, you know, was really about a year and a half. But, but you know, just collecting all of these facts over the years um, has, yeah, been a very long, very long process. And I wanted, I wanted to be able to write something and, you know, really prove so many of these things that I think many of us, you know, that, that care about food have been thinking for a long time. Um, and I wanted it to be comprehensive enough that it would be very hard to say, you know, oh, no, that's not really true, because there's just so many facts there that support these conclusions. Well, I think moving forward, you'll, we'll be seeing your name in a lot of the uh, bibliographies and uh, sources of plenty of food writers. So <laughs> um, on that note, we're going to just take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Ellen about um, food waste, the price of food, as well as some action steps from a book. Stay with us. That I never, 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 never had no loving like this before. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We're back. I'm Brianna Kurtz. This is Eat Your Words, and I'm speaking with Ellen Gustafson, author of We the Eaters, If We Change Dinner, We Can Change the World. So, Ellen, um, 
this book is extremely passionate and you, you don't tip around subjects. You're very direct and saying like, this is a problem and this is what I think a solution could look like. Um, and you, to make it kind of relatable and to, um, adaptable, you talk about your 30 action steps, kind of your conclusion in the book. And, um, you talk about things from like family meals to buy local to cutting sugar or not drinking soda. Um, but I wanted to spend some time talking about two, two main points. Um, the first being rethinking what food costs and then spending some time talking about, uh, food waste or reducing food waste. And as we touched on in the beginning, um, using consumer dollars to motivate change in, in the food supply, um, can you talk about ways where kind of when someone's at the store and they see like maybe a, an organic or, or local or grass, you know, grass fed, whatever it may be, non-antibiotic, uh, non-GMO, whatever, versus um, something that's been processed. And how do you, how do we get people to, when they're making that purchasing decision to go for the better option, I guess? Well, you know, one, one thing I, I hit on in this, in this kind of action point was really the idea that, that we spend so much money on stuff we don't realize we're spending so much money on. <laughs> you know, I think, I think the, the, the number is like $65 billion on soft drinks and, and, and you know, close to $120 billion on fast food. And so what, what's been frustrating is that, you know, in the same, the same food conversation that we're having across America about all of us wanting to lose weight, where really one of the number one tenets of, of, you know, people trying to change their diet and lose weight is that everyone's looking for ways to sort of eat less, right? We don't factor economics into that. And, so it, you know, here we are pushing for a food supply that's as cheap as humanly possible, and then we have so many overweight people who are trying to eat less. And, you know, w- one of the ironies that I, that I noticed is that, you know, if, if we use kind of a, a few food rules, you know, that we all know and love and, and, and buy as sustainable as possible in, in you know, and, and source our food in ways that are as healthy for us and healthy for the environment and healthy for the world, it kind of puts an economic spin on going on a diet because you obviously, you, you can't eat as much grass-fed meat. So, you know, here, here we have people complaining that, that here grass-fed organic, you know, whatever the, the, the sort of high-end meat that's so expensive, and everyone wants to theoretically eat less meat because they want to be on a, a diet. So I, I always found that, that that was, I felt like that was really missing from the conversation. You know, a great way to eat less is, is to just buy really high-quality food that you you actually, in your food budget, can't afford to buy more. Um, and the other thing, you know, is, is the concept that we go to the store and we, we see things two-for-one, the end caps, they're all so enticing. And most of the time, there's some form of process, you know, as Michael Moss says, you know, salt, sugar, and fat. And if, if we just don't buy any of that stuff, if we never stop at the drive-thru, that's extra money in our pocket to put towards the healthier food that we're going to eat at home. So, so I, I think there's been a bit of a mis, you know, mis- misleading element to the, the sort of economic and, and cheap food conversation um, that we haven't really just honestly said, hey, you know, if you limit your food choices by eating as fresh and, and local or organic or wh- whatever it is to you that's most important, you really can you know, have your diet right there, right there in front of your, you know, on your plate. It's true. I, I pay about $16 a pound for spinach. Um, the first time I did it, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> but now I'm like, well, I'm going to buy this pound and I'm going to use it in everything I'm going to eat this week, whether I'm making a salad or a stir fry or whatever it is. And which 
I guess leads into my, my next topic I want to talk about with you is uh, waste. And if you, for you know our listeners, if you want to talk, because you do talk about this in the book, like where is most waste coming from and where can the biggest impact in improving that be made? Well, one thing that's really very interesting about food waste is that the number that's around 40% is global. And so, one, it, you know, it ties really into the sort of how we're going to feed the world conversation because so much of the food that's produced by, by even farmers in the developing world is wasted, whether it's on the farm because they don't have the, the, the you know, the, the, the technology or the help to, to get it picked, or it's in preservation because there isn't the right cold storage facilities or cold chain facilities or good enough roads to get it to market. So I think that's a really important part of the food waste conversation. So the infrastructure to kind of help. That it's, yeah, that's definitely a problem in the developing world. But at home, you know, it's really all along the food chain and it's built into our system. And that's something that I think a lot of eaters don't necessarily realize, that it's built into our system from farm literally all the way into our, our, our refrigerators. So there's, a, there's an assumption that food is not going to make it from the field to the, you know, to the truck. It's not going to make it from the truck to the, to the supermarket. It's not going to make it from the supermarket, you know, out of the back into the front. You know, so I think we, we have to really rethink what kind of food chain do we want if this amount of waste is built in. And it's a waste of resources and it's a waste of, you know, manpower. Um, you know, so, so I, I think that's where some of the alternative buying mm-hmm. systems have been very successful. You know, people would rather buy direct from a farmer because you know that there wasn't necessarily that waste mm-hmm. all, the, all the steps away. Well, and in no other industry would, like, 40% waste be acceptable. It just... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it never I, I find it I find it so frustrating that, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this kind of, like, rest on your haunches if you're a big food company and say that it's all capitalism. And if you look at the food system, it's one of the least free market systems that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with, what with subsidies and unaccounted for costs from our water to our environment and all of this waste. I mean, that is not really a, a fundamentally free market capitalist system. Absolutely. Um, so one of your other major themes besides like the purchasing power of co- uh, consumers in this book is, you know, just changing the dinner table. Um, change dinner, we can change the world. So, you know, you give a couple of recipes in the back of the book, but ultimately this isn't really a cookbook. And since here at Eat Your Words, we do talk about cookbooks. And um, or do you have any that you go to or that you'd recommend any really good cookbooks or blogs that you like? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. I, I tend to be more of a, of a cook who looks in the fridge and sees what I have and mm-hmm. puts them all into Google and, you know, <laughs> figures out what, what kind of pops up. Um, but I love cookbooks from, from an inspirational perspective. Um, I, I have, you know, my, my friend Sarah Copeland has this great vegetarian cookbook called Keith. Um, and I love Jamie Oliver's cookbooks because they really kind of cover so many different things. I go to Food 52, like so many, you know, people um, kind of looking for, for different recipes. Um, and, but but I, I also just found that, you know, just the, the, I, I love how how democratized cooking has become because of the internet, because literally on your smartphone you can say, okay, I have these beans and this spinach and, and lemon and chicken, what can I make? Um, and, you know, that, that's, I th- that's, to me, that's the fun of it. That's the sort of creative and artistic outlet of, of cooking. And 
we're almost out of time, but uh, we definitely have a couple of minutes. I want to talk about your projects away from the book. And one thing that is great about your work is you have this great book, but you also have an organization kind of backing it up and um, doing things all you're talking about in the book. So that's potentially um, very powerful, like I hope. And um, I encourage everyone to check out foodtank.com. And Ellen, if you want to tell us a little bit about what Food Tank is, what you're doing, how people can get involved, and also your um, your 30 project. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I kind of have a couple of different things in the offing. Food Tank has been this incredible, incredible project. Um, really, I would say, spearheaded um, by my co-founder, Danielle Nirenberg, who is an absolute hero in the food movement. Um, and I'm super honored to, to kind of be able to work with her. But, it, you know, the two of us really were, were together seeing each other at both international food groups and the domestic food groups and realizing we were some of the few that actually trans, you know, were, were sort of in both circles. Um, and we, we decided that, that there's, there's so much out there, there's so many success stories out there, there's so much hope out there in how agriculture can really change the world. And we just want to make sure people are seeing those stories, hearing those stories, and able to support and, and learn more about those initiatives. So Food Tank really has been a way to, to raise the profile of so many smaller groups literally everywhere around the world that are doing such amazing things and using agriculture as a solution to many global problems. The 30 Project was, was kind of in this, what I was talking about in the beginning about data and being obsessed with the year 1980. I gave a talk in 2010 about the idea that, look, in the last 30 years, the food system had dramatically changed, and a lot of that data is in the book. And the concept was, was very simple. Like, if it's taken us 30 years to create an obesity epidemic and not yet solve hunger and really do a, a, some pretty terrible things in our food system, how can we in the next 30 years get out of that? And one of the most amazing things in my work, in my career, especially in the last 10 years, has been how much faster change has happened than I thought. You know, I really thought in 2010 it was going to take a long time before really most of my friends shopped at farmer's markets. But it was within a couple of years. I, I, I feel like now almost everyone I know goes to a farmer's market, and, and, it, and they're everywhere. Um, you know, and so I, I, what I've been so, ho- you know, sort of bu- buoyed by in my work is how quickly systems can actually change with the right technology, with the right entrepreneurs, with the right farmers, you know, and with eaters really doing their part. So I don't think we're going to need the 30 projects 30 years from now. I think a lot of these systems will have changed already. That's excellent. And, um, you you know you do so you do think that you know you have a hopeful outlook. We've do you think we've made progress when you talk about the farmers market and there was this one example in the dairy chapter of your book about this odd, odd like butter during World War II that there was like coloring that you added to it yeah. a powder and it's I'm like margarine. well we don't sell that anymore so we've got to be we've got to be doing a little bit better right. Well, margarine is a great example, actually, of change. You know, when I was in college, even in, like, the early 2000s, a lot of my friends still ate margarine over butter because they thought it was healthier. And I would say now most eaters realize that, you know, fake butter is probably not as good as real butter. So I think that's a great example of of change over time. Um, But, you know, the fact is cooking and food are incredibly sexy among young people today. Every college campus I go to... Every group of young people finds this a really sexy, fun, important thing to do. And that itself is a radical change. Awesome. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Eat Your Words today. It's truly been a pleasure. We the Eaters is out now wherever books are sold. Go pick it up. 
That's all for us today. I'm Brianna Kurtz, and we'll see you right back here next week where my partner in crime co-host, Talia Rolfe, will be speaking to Ava Chin about eating wildly. I like the way you do. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Never had no loving like this before